Oh, it's being recorded. Oh, no. Just want to get this all this hot, <laughs> hot stuff on the record, just in case. <laughs> uh, this is all on the record. You're not going to edit out my, my, because my hair and makeup department uh, <laughs> weren't available today. Well, it will just be audio, so the hair will just be to the imagination. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Good to hear. Good to yeah, hear. Yeah. Did you, you got a haircut? Yeah, uh, my wife has long been my private hairstylist, but I had a realization that I should give a professional hairstylist uh, a proper try. Yeah. And see what kind of magic they can come up with because I don't like to feel dependent on uh, loved ones. Uh, for basic hygiene. Yeah. I didn't think you were even getting haircuts because it was like long and wild. I thought you were just... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess about a year and a half, two years ago, up until then, I uh, had a mountain man phase <laughs> uh, in which my hair was very, very long. It had it, it, it been at its longest since I was a teenager and my beard was at its most unkempt. Uh, and my hairline was was uh, receding. I looked insane. I actually I found a photograph of it of that era, and and Nancy confirmed that I I looked pretty insane. I I I'm, it's kind of amazing that uh, I had a job at a gallery at the time, and my my boss didn't mind uh, <laughs> sitting next to a, a cave troglodyte. He never said anything. No, in fact, I think he might have enjoyed it because I gave the gallery street cred. Right, you were like keeping it real. <laughs> yeah, I was a little all too real. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had to go through it, that phase. Yeah, it reminds me of your early paintings. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think was going on psychologically there? Uh. Well, the early paintings, I was uh, making images of men just hanging out in caves lo with long hair and beards and whatnot. And I abandoned that motif for other ones, as one does. Mm -hmm. uh, but in that era of Mountain Man, I had started to show professionally a bit more on the reg. And I was getting some traction with the market. Uh, and I, I felt like it was the first time I could actually live like an artist in the way that I always imagined an artist should live, which is a, a space of, of uh, freedom, mental, mental freedom, and uh, freedom to dress however they want. Mm -hmm. uh, so even though I, I had a job and it was part time for the latter years of, of that gig, um, I, I was able to, I guess, uh, live uh, La Vida Loca uh, in the style of the caveman. I didn't think of it consciously, but now that you bring it up, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, like being kind of wild and free and un, um, <laughs> uncivilized, but also kind of isolated. 
Yeah, I, uh, that was uh, an isolationist uh, period. I didn't, uh, the early work, I didn't show my work to many people and I certainly wasn't having any studio visits for the most part. Uh, and I felt uh, pretty out on the outside. I, I hadn't yet gone to uh, graduate school or, or showed in any pro uh, professional galleries. I, you know, I didn't really uh, know much about the art world beyond uh, the, the sort of keyhole view I had of it through uh, my undergraduate education. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, how are you supposed to know uh, a damn thing at that at, when you're in your early 20s? So uh, yeah. being in, in, a, in a prehistorical phase uh, <laughs> felt very apt. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel that. I didn't know shit was going on. Like, <laughs> it's a very, you think you know what you're doing, but I feel like, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and we continue to not know what we're doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, but under the proviso that we knew a little bit more than we did before. Yeah, maybe we know enough to know that we don't know. <laughs> and to kind of even like um, court the not knowing. Or, or at least be more comfortable with not knowing and knowing that you don't know. Yeah. And even maybe being excited about not knowing and using that as fodder for whatever you do next. Yeah. I think it's exciting and scary. Uh, you mean the present or in, in general? <laughs> not like being, making work from a place of not knowing or from like, um, I guess, well, I read this thing recently in this book called The Courage to Create. And it was kind of, um, it was talking about like all art comes from an encounter of some kind and that could either be in the external world or the internal world. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of comparing it to sex also, like in that, like it's like this knowing this like like knowing in the biblical sense or knowing with a direct physical sense rather than like an intellectual sense and and kind of a kind of um a slippage between knowing and not knowing back and forth yeah 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 uh, uh a lot of art making for me uh, at least feels like that and uh, it took me a while to realize that that's okay. I, when I was in graduate school, uh, I was trained at CalArts. Uh, the, the sort of ethos there was you should know what you're doing at, right. every, at, every, at every point of the production and pre-production and post-production. And you should be able to articulate what your intentions were. Now, you might not be able to control how the audience re reacts, but you are very clear about your intentions at all times. Right. And, uh, and, and it's for that reason that, uh, among many, that I, I, I felt a little bit um, constipated after I left because, uh, you know, you're, it's not, I don't think it's a very human and natural way to work. No. Uh, I mean, especially for painting, it's much more, it's very much of a like conceptual art model, whereas I don't think that's what painting is 
generally about, right? I mean, it can be about that. I just, um, and there yeah. are so-called conceptual painters out there. Uh, uh, but you, you know, next thing you know, you have, you, you add two more people into the room about that subject. You'll, you'll all be fighting about what that means to be a conceptual painter in the first place. So maybe you're right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, certainly there could be, there's a whole range of why people paint or how they paint, but I mm -hmm. feel like most artists on some level have to not know what they're doing. Yeah, well, you have to keep it exciting. And yeah, then, um, kind of go out on a limb in your own territory, even like which I think is kind of exciting. Like I feel like that's what I get from your show. I feel like you're really getting into this space of like your own mm. thing. That's very um, it's from imagination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I uh I was joking to uh a visitor to my show the other day that uh I would have been uh kicked out of CalArts had I made this work while I was there. And we all laughed because I think to some extent that would have been true. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't I don't think that work would have been defensible uh in that kind of environment. And and then it made me, of course, think about uh, how I landed where where I am and and what I had to react to to get there. And uh, and it made me analyze like where my mind was exactly, at least from the day to day in making the show, because I only had uh, about two or three months to make it. Oh wow. Yeah, so it was a pedal to the metal kind of situation. And I I had a vague idea of how I wanted it to look, really vague, kind of shadowy at best. Uh, and, I, and I had the notion in my head that everything was gonna be based around the vessel somehow, but not functional mm -hmm. uh, and, and, uh, and uh, in marine life. And that's it. And then so every piece uh, I made had its own inbuilt, story that I was inventing, not in the not in a literal sense, but a story, not only in terms of how it was made technically, but all the sort of uh minutiae and allusions and metaphors and metonyms. I just kind of tried to jam pack every piece with uh, as much of whatever was going on in my head as I was making it as possible. Mm. Do you think the um, tight deadline helped that of like having to kind of go with your gut? Yes, I do. I think if I had been given more time to luxuriate in my production, I might have started to get a little too stiff or stringent on how uh, the work should should progress. And I would have... Um, maybe the the show wouldn't have had as much energy as as this one did. Yeah, like editing or censoring or second guessing or something. Totally. I mean, there were plenty of times though anyway in the two months that I felt a great amount of despair mm -hmm. as to how it was all going. And I felt like uh, maybe this is all a bunch of crap and, you know, a lot of uh, doubt, 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 but, 
I, I knew I wasn't going to stop. I had no choice but to, to run to the finish line mm-hmm. and do the best I could. But I, I had no sense of how this work was going to land with people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't even know how it landed with me. because it feels like such a breakthrough I feel especially I mean I feel like there's um like I mean you're starting to work with this kind of C work C Mm -hmm. work like when I don't know was that a year ago or two years ago like yeah three two or three years ago it was like a side hustle kind of thing yeah yeah and there was that guy who was like no shame in the sea and stuff like yeah yeah well that guy is me you're you're talking I to know, him I know but <laughs> I, and I think um something I think we share is like a very psychological orientation and I I feel like the connecting tissue for me of like this work and your older work is shame like the pornography work I felt was like you're delving into something shameful in the collective unconscious but now you're more moving into your own shame or even like maybe like kind of releasing of shame um like it's very flamboyant work kind of yeah uh you you uh every word you just uttered is so spot on i uh was in a studio visit before i kind of went full throttle with the marine life motif and motifs and uh the and this was an older artist very established uh, an artist i respected still respect very much and uh she was looking at my porn paintings and she asked me a question that hit me in the solar plexus which was uh who, where are you in all of this like where where is max and in, in all of this sort of moral ambiguity and I couldn't answer that question. I really couldn't. I, I I actually went at great lengths to bracket my own subjectivity uh, or how I thought about the images that I was painting on a moral level I, completely out of out of the picture. I didn't want uh, my my personal opinions to be in the picture other than what you might read in an interview or something. Right. I mean, your choice of, do you feel like your choice of the porn images was based on your taste or was it just more like? Weird? No, I, I, the, the porn images, uh, and I don't, I understand why people would not know this, but uh, I never chose the images I worked from based on some fetish or, or based on the idea that I was a track, I was attracted physically to whatever was happening in the photo. The main reason I chose them was because they were formally interesting to me. And I thought, oh, uh, I really like um, some of the, I like the, <laughs> I like the negative space happening here. It's really going to pop when I throw in this color. You know, I was just thinking right. purely, purely in formal terms. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think that, get, that gets lost in the conversation because uh, we're living at a time where uh, people have a very hard time tolerating uh, uh, a lack of moral clarity right which i think is a real that it sucks for art i don't think like oh, I, it's horrible yeah it's horrible for art it's horrible it's horrible for a great many things uh and and that is also part of the reason why i stopped making porno paintings i was mainly just sick of making them but uh it was a relief to stop because um the 
the, the pushback uh, against the tide, like where we are with the zeitgeist, it, it just felt so pointless. Like I would only be pleasing myself, which is important, mm -hmm. but I wasn't even pleasing myself at that point because I just was ready to move on. But even if I were to continue, it would be nothing but, uh, you know, shooting a gun at a tidal wave coming at me. It's just, there's, there's no, there, there's no room for conversation in, in a situation like that. Yeah, but I think it's like a blessing in this, or I feel like it pushed you into this new territory that is more your own, which I think is really exciting. Yeah, I, and, and uh, I, what I love about life and art making is that I, I had no idea uh, what would happen and how it would happen or how it was, was going to unfold. I it, like most things I've done in my life artistically, it always starts out as a joke to myself. And then slowly over time, that joke becomes more and more serious because I'm repeating it over and over. And then slowly over time, getting better at articulating what is funny about it to myself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, the, the first crab I made, the first clay piece I made was a crab. And I thought, oh, this is hilarious. It's a it's a little side joke or uh will nod in the direction of my porno paintings because uh, STDs are, are probably uh, an occupational hazard hazard for sex work. <laughs> Interesting. That's funny. Yeah. Um, did you feel like, well, I have a couple questions around that. Did you feel like the porno paintings were kind of based on a joke as well, like a joke with yourself or something? Yes. Yes, uh, they were because... I remember, like many painters do, uh, what am I going to paint next? Uh, about 10 years ago, I was sitting in my studio. What am I going to paint next? And um, I'm big on just using things that are at hand. I'm, I'm really into buying tools and collecting um, things that might be helpful later to me. Like, I, I won't know exactly why I want that thing, that tool, but I know it'll be helpful later somehow. It might take years or it might take a week. So in that case, I had uh, an old bed sheet lying around and I certainly had a computer full of pornography. Uh, <laughs> so I thought, and I was looking to, to, to make paintings and had been making paintings off of found images. And so I thought, what, what saucier thing could I choose to do other than paint pornographic images on bed sheets, which, uh, you know, reinforced, um, the subject matter in a, in a kind of perfect way. And um, also I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't really big on like prep work. Like I was like, oh, I don't even need to prep the surface. I just go. Yeah. That's <laughs> cool. So you saved yourself some time too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like, uh, you know, I was using used bed sheets. So it's dirt cheap uh, material to work with. And it also had a psychic density of, you know, the object, the bedsheet had a psychic density because I didn't know what went on on that thing. Right. Uh, all, all kinds of uh, naughty things must have happened on that bedsheet. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of uh, riffing on that too. Um, yeah, I just like the, the, the immediacy of the material, it, it was funny to me. I was like, oh, this is so, hilarious that I'm trying this. And I didn't think at the time that I was going to turn that into a body of work. I was just amusing myself. Mm, that's cool. That's really interesting. So it was like almost like just a side 
like a, just a, like let's see what happens this isn't even for real kind of thing yeah it's like i had to maybe it's a psychological thing i have to trick myself into thinking it's not a big deal in order yeah. to do it um, you feel like when you but then when you did it did you feel like this sense of like oh this is something important uh not a right away i it probably took me several paintings into it to realize that i was uh finding a vein i could really mine there mm. and uh and the paintings weren't that good at first as many first paintings are but i did sense an excitement going on in my in my nervous system that i had to keep feeding because uh I, I I was like in my mid thirties at the time, uh, and I I felt like um, I need I needed some kind of um, <laughs> I needed some kind of like uh, emblematic body of work for what I what I was doing, you know. Yeah, that's cool that you found it in that. It's also I'm seeing another connection between. Those and the new work, which is that both like, I mean, the bed sheet makes it kind of have a sculptural element in a way. It's like kind of, it makes mm -hmm. it more of an object. I mean, all paintings are objects, but it just, it kind of brings in this idea of physicality and materials in a different way. Like maybe um, then we often you know, maybe the default of painting, which is certainly not at all the only way it works, but like we we use paint and canvas and they're like neutral and we don't have to think about them, but it kind of makes your, you chose something that makes us reconsider it as an object. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, canvas in of itself uh, isn't neutral, but we've come to think of it as being neutral. It's, it's what is, thr is thrusted upon you. Mm -hmm. to make images on and and for good reason uh but i i guess i haven't i've developed an allergy towards uh that default mechanism that's installed with painting and 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 always now uh proceed with some quirky novelty to whatever i'm painting on like i haven't made too many of them yet but i started also making paintings of sea life on uh, denim mm -hmm. uh which has like a very kind of um, uh, uneven surface in a lot of ways. It feels like you're painting on burlap a little bit. It's cool. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Did you, um, I wanna like ask one more question about the, um, the sex paintings, but then we'll talk more about the crabs and things. But um, sure. did you, <clears throat> So I don't feel like I thought about this that much when I looked at them, but now more recently as I'm thinking about painting, like, did you feel like you were thinking about the relationship between the sexual act and the creative act in making them? <laughs> uh, yes, I did. Um, uh, I was, I, I mean, I think I've always been sort of like a, a sexually repressed person. Like I, one person once said to me, uh, an older uh, gay man, he was like, you're either a freak or you're really repressed after he saw my work. <laughs> and, um, and, and I'm definitely on the repressed side. So when you're painting into bed sheets, 
even if your brush is pretty loaded, uh, it, you know, the, the, the material just soaks in the paint. Uh, and you, there's no amount of, of material of paint on your brush that will get you sort of that, that buttery brush strokey coverage that you might get in any other substrate. So uh, I felt like the act, the sensuality, that the sensual aspect of painting was thwarted. Like, you know, like it felt like you're, you, you were painting into tissue paper. It, it just frustrated all, uh, you know, uh, frustrated that, that, that sensuality that I think every painter kind of is attracted to when they're making work. Um, and not to say that there wasn't some kind of sensuality uh, in in that of itself, but I, you know, I liked I liked the idea of being thwarted somehow. Like it wasn't um, a surface that was going to offer itself openly to me. I had to really build it up, uh, thin layer by thin layer. Right, like seducing a woman or something. <laughs> yeah, like the you know, I mean, we've all are very familiar with the act of uh, flirtation and seduction and um, talking with somebody and, and seeing, trying to figure out where they are emotionally uh, and how out of step with you they might be. Uh, and uh, analogous to that, the painting process felt like that to me uh, in painting on bed sheets. It, it, it felt like uh, a, a game of cat and mouse. Mm -hmm. And there was very little room for error. Uh, so I would build up uh, air areas of, of thick gesso to cover over those areas where I felt like things weren't quite gelling. And so you, I, I was almost like I was uh, patching up uh, area, like areas I was embarrassed with, about with thicker with thicker applications. And then those thicker applications became a functioning um, mechanism in the, in the design of the painting. Mm -hmm. And I feel like maybe because of how absorbent they are, like they always, it's surprising to me that people had problems with them because I felt like they had this very soft touch despite the pornography, like they felt very sweet to me or yeah. non, they were non-threatening I thought um, yeah uh, I fully agreed but uh even the most educated and um you know uh you know the sharpest tools in the toolbox will often uh scan an image and uh if the red flag if the, the clerical red flag goes up, it goes up. Uh, all the subtlety kind of runs out the door, especially if you're looking at it through a JPEG or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Because the work was always emphatically non-sexual to me. Like I, I never, I had maybe once or twice uh, had been told that my paintings inspired sexual arousal, mm -hmm. um, but I, I always thought of them as, as, as asexual paintings. Surprising. I mean, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't have guessed you thought of them as asexual, but yeah, they didn't. I mean, I feel like they're not sexy. I, I don't, I never thought of them as, I guess what I mean is I never thought of the paintings as being sexy. Like I wasn't, I was trying to seduce you by, with the material, the materiality, not with the image. Mm 
And so therefore I, you know, what you're talking about this, this sort of gentleness and, and uh, you could, you know, argue in quotes, feminine sort of treatment of this, of this otherwise um, patriarchal and aggressive subject matter uh, complicates and problematizes the, the, what it is to, to be a voyeur and looking at sex. Like it's not um, necessarily uh, only for um, the straight male. It's, there's all kinds of um, nuances that occur in our brains and sex that could be explored in the image. And I was trying to do that yeah. really hard. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that comes through. Maybe it's like, and it, I feel like in a way it, it, um, it kind of presupposes that women don't like sex or are not interested in looking at sex or something. Like, I feel like it's a weird, it's a weird position in a way, albeit though most pornography is intended for a male gaze. Yes. So taking that, that framing and that focal point, but I feel like doing something else to it, um, which is, Unusual, I think, because there is a lot of art based on porn, and a lot of it I do find not offensive, but just boring. Like, and like right. we have so much porn, I don't need more porn. Like, I would rather see sex represented in a new way aside from porn. Yeah, it. Uh, I mean, it's it's interesting that you know porn is so utterly pervasive in our culture now, especially now that it's largely free. But, you know, no one really talks about it as, as except as maybe like, um, I don't know, at least in my world, like everyone always talks about it in passing. Like it's never, it's never the, the, the main subject of the conversation. Right. Like we're all, we're all ingesting it, but it's like, we don't really talk about it. And in fact, I've heard something before that it's like, it makes more money than Hollywood. Like that's still true I don't even know how they make money off it based on the fact there's so much of it online for free but I believe it on some I would totally believe that it makes more than Hollywood yeah I would too I don't know uh where the money largely flows towards now I would imagine it's like towards the big two or three porn websites that are out there and not to the performers mm -hmm. uh, yeah uh and I heard actually there was a um there's this really good BBC documentarian that I really like. He did a a project on um, the sort of uh, post Pornhub life of a of a traditional um, uh, sex performer, and they there there's a like a market um, uh, of like porn tailored for for certain clientele. So you could re request um, a couple of well known performers to uh destroy your stamp collection uh you know and then insult you viciously and there's actually no uh simulation of sex at all oh uh, interesting yeah so uh there's like uh, a whole other new market kind of coming i don't know how lucrative that is but um you know like all these little like sex worker weeds are kind of growing in between the the massive 
concrete tiles that are Pornhub browsers and all those other websites. Uh, yeah, the whole like niche market of the internet, like everyone can have their exact fantasy. Yeah, like any fantasy that you haven't had fulfilled in your life. And if you got a some disposable income, you could literally hire your favorite porn star to enact it for you. Yeah. I guess that's cool. <laughs> I mean, whatever, whatever works. I, I, I don't know how we ended up on this topic exactly, but there, the, I can think we were just talking about the pervasiveness of, of pornography and um, how largely it's been treated in the art world and at least in uh, liberal visual culture as a site of critique, um, uh, as a site of um, feminist ire, depend, I guess, depending on what generation of feminism you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but people like Cozy Fanny Tucci who like did porn and like considered it her work and stuff like represented it as her work right uh she was a, a pioneer especially for her generation yeah. um and I think she was probably largely out of step with um you know people like Gloria Steinem who was like yeah. uh <laughs> roughly at her at her peak uh, around that time yeah I mean I still think it's quite I don't even really know what what her thinking was about it, but I think it's really interesting and challenging. And she certainly was kind of like putting her money where her mouth was. Yeah, uh, you know, I I guess like um, there there are of course exceptions. Um, Cozy Fanny Tootie is definitely one of those, but. Uh, you know, I think it's largely pornography has been is, is treated as as uh, a hanger onto which you can you can put other ideas about uh, painting or sculpture or all kinds of other things. Uh, and pornography is just like the template. And, and it was like that for me, too. Uh, I guess just sensibility wise, um, it it had its had its own little, little niche. Yeah. You know? sense like in a way it makes me understand more how you think of them as asexual because um like in a sense porn isn't even really sex it's like theater yes exactly it's theater uh it's theater for the sex partner uh that is yourself yeah <laughs> um and i mean I, of course i know people uh, I know women who use it, like they'll watch straight pornography to get them uh, started, as it were, or they they will get off on that too. But um, you know, it's 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 largely, uh, uh, yeah. I don't know what else to add to that. <laughs> let's like let's try to segue into the crabs and the water world. Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm happy to segue into crabs at any given time. Did you know that nature itself has segued into crabs five separate times? No, I, I don't know what that means, but tell me more. Uh, basically, they, they, scientists um, discovered that uh, throughout, throughout the course of evolution, uh, animals have drifted towards uh, crab like 
bodily structures five separate times. So it's like, um, do you see that as that they have some kind of like superpower? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I'm probably going to butcher this word. Um, uh, car carcinization, um, the idea of uh, making a hard shell uh, for a soft body underneath. Um, nature obviously saw that that is a, a super, super efficient and productive way to not only protect um, the animal, but also serve as, as, as its skeleton, as it were, like, you know, it's an exoskeleton. Right, right, right. And uh, nature kept uh, reverting back uh, on five different occasions to uh, this opportunity uh, over and over again. So it's almost like, you know, you, you reset evolution uh, five separate times and, and always it'll go, it'll eventually, uh, angle back into carcinization, car carcinization, if that's the right way of pronouncing it. So it's like a successful archetype or something. Very much so. Uh, and, uh, they're also uh, another exciting thing to me about crabs is they're the only animal, as far as I'm aware, that walks sideways. Hmm. Which is yeah i mean i think there's a lot there um <laughs> i mean do you see it as a kind of avatar yeah all of the marine creatures uh, inevitably serve as my avatar um indirectly like i don't think i actively ever think oh this octopus is me uh but they always end up being tightly bound up with with my personality and essence somehow, and I'm I am amused by that, and it's probably unavoidable, given yeah. the fact that I um I, I think I depict them with a lot of uh, compassion, so I think that comes through somehow. Yeah. Um. So they started as a kind of joke, but then it feels you got pretty obsessed with crabs like you were always like posting different images of them and collecting seemingly different images about them like can you describe more of how you got so entrenched in the crabs <laughs> uh gladly um i you know in making any animal uh with some uh, accuracy uh, in pursuit of that. You you want to know what they look like, so I would punch up crab and check out their anatomy and and you know figure out in my head how I was going to construct this creature out of clay. And then you, I went down a wormhole. I, I discovered uh, a, a sort of master crab website that seemed to have, seems to catalog every possible species on Earth, and I was just amazed at the diversity of how they looked, uh, their behaviors and all kinds of things. And I just uh, absolutely became bewitched by uh, like just the, the sheer aesthetic diversity that was happening in that crab world. And, and then of course I would get, um, I would develop crushes um, on certain, certain types of crabs. Uh, in particular, the, uh, the, the shame-faced crab, uh, which literally looks like a crab hiding its face uh, in embarrassment. And then um, uh, 
what other crabs do I love? I love the spider crab, the Japanese spider crab, the, the ones that you always see uh, with the super long legs, super long legs. Like you see them in aquariums all the time um, and so on. So I, I just being, but just by being around them, I developed uh, uh, an obsession, like all obsessions. Uh, well, I don't think they all start that way. I, I can't say I was ever fetishistically attracted to them, but th there is like a, uh, a certain um, anthropomorphization happening between myself and the crabs. Like I started identifying with them. Yeah. It feels like that, yeah, I get the sense from your posting of images that there is this infinite trove of different variations on them as creatures. Like they mm -hmm. are so strange and and they resemble each other, but they also have all these different variations. Yeah, uh, I, I, and I always, what I, I think one of the main things that binds all the species is they all look a little grumpy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're not, you're not a, um, what is, isn't there a zodiac sign, cancer? You're not a cancer though, right? I'm not a cancer, uh, uh, unfortunately, but uh, maybe I have a cancer rising. I don't know. I don't know much about horoscopes. Um, Wait, you're uh, you 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 uh, um, your voice kind of uh, uh, drowned out a little bit. What'd you say? Oh, I said maybe maybe it's your moon sign or something. Yeah, could be. Uh, but yeah, I'm a Libra, so uh, I don't know what the relationship uh, could be teased out of that. But there's there there's certainly um, you know to all you cancers out there, I salute you. <laughs> Do you? I hear. I feel like I don't. I'm not a astrology expert but i think that maybe which makes sense with your work that a cancer is like kind of aggressive but actually really sensitive mm, yeah um they i would imagine i don't know enough about crab behavior to uh you know uh agree or deny that statement but i, I i'd like to think that's true i i they're they're their anatomical structure seems to betray that they are that. Yeah, like they have this hard exterior, but they're super soft inside. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they eat everything like, you know, particle by particle, but they don't, you know, it's not like they're tearing off big hunks of flesh and then munching on it. They're always like sifting through sand and like eating tiny little bugs and particles that are on the little grains. It's so uh merciless but cute <laughs> like it has some analogy to the creative process too of like taking little bits of things and like sifting through them totally totally yeah and um being kind of uh hopelessly repetitive about it like i mean I mean, every animal has like a certain algorithm that it follows and it doesn't really break too far away from that. We find that with our dogs and cats. But when you get to the lower forms like crabs, they're more primitive. So it's even more like that, that sort of algorithmic loop of behavior is even tighter than um, higher functioning animals. So I find that interesting. Like, it, you know, the crab compulsively will just continually sift through bits of sand for tinier crustaceans to feast on. And, and I, and I, 
I saw once a, a video of somebody boiling a crab alive and it was still kind of searching on the plate on the pan for food with its claw. That's horrible. It's a horrible image. And uh, it, I don't know if science has fully proved this or not, but I, uh, I read somewhere that crabs do not feel pain, at least not in the same way we do. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, what they say like, oh, lobsters, lobsters scream when you place them in boiling water. That's not true. They, they don't make sound. But uh, the, 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 the screaming sound that people are speaking of is the hot air being trapped underneath the, the, the shell. So all crustaceans don't feel pain. That's the premise. That is out there. I've heard that argument being made. I'm sure that are there there are um, some crustacean experts out there that are going to uh, stand up in in complete disgust um, <laughs> towards that statement. But uh, I, I I do think that's an interesting concept. Like, is there an animal out there that is genetic, like evolutionarily wired to not feel pain? Yeah, I was. It's hard to know, like we can never really feel what they feel, right? Exactly, and that's and that's the 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 relationship that we have with other human beings is that you know everyone can always describe to you in language how they feel and and how they ended up feeling it, but you'll never quite understand what it's like to be in their shoes, to be in their body, to you know to feel the pain that they feel. It's impossible to translate. Um, and that extends far beyond even our relationships, but into the animal kingdom, of course, you know, but, you know, the fact that we can like empathize that I empathize with animals the way I do, and I'm sure other people take it to much further levels, um, is built on that, that need to bridge that gap somehow, I think. Mm. I mean, I like this word you use primitive. I think that it also bridges your like intern it feels like you're bridging to this primitive place in yourself yes yes uh i am always been fascinated by so-called primitive forms of art production and prim and so-called primitive um uh, ideas about finish and um, general aesthetics. Like I, I know outsider art is, you know, increasingly being called into question as even a category, but uh, I still always respond strongly to artwork that uh, was made with no particular ideology uh, to, that it followed, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it's like, I feel the same way, although I, I don't like the word outsider art. Like, I prefer self-taught, but... Right, yeah, that's a, that's a better way of putting it. Like, I mean, yeah, I think it's increasingly becoming a, a not, a non, I don't know. It's not there yet, but um, yeah, it's that much anymore. But I do think what it does seem to congeal together is artists that were like, making work very unselfconsciously and kind of without any relationship to the market in many cases like mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm like, uh, I, I'm like Mike Kelly uh, in an interview uh, associated art production with ritual, mm. uh, an idea I really liked. Um, and it helped free me up in making this show because I, I, I just started thinking about, uh, you know, my, the art production as a, as a, as a form of personal ritual. Um, and, you know, and in doing so, I, I didn't have to, uh, observe anyone else's ideologies and, 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 uh, uh, critique systems, you know? Yeah. I like that. So if it's a ritual, like, so walk me through the ritual. Like, I mean, <laughs> one other thing I was thinking is like, even though they're sculptures, like I feel like they're also very painterly. Like in some way they just feel like they could also be like three-dimensional paintings. Three-dimensional. Yeah, uh, yeah, because of my, um, painter background, I, there was no way I was going to relinquish that sensibility from the glazing process. Uh, you know, I, as I kind of in, intimated before, I don't really like um, hyper slick uh, surfaces or hyper slick uh, self-actualized artworks. I, I, I much more respond to like the intuitive hesitant touch and because there's so much you can't really control in ceramics, um, it 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 really lends itself well to that. And also, it's it lends itself pretty well to heartbreak because it's mm. very very little uh, moments that I ever take a thing out of the kiln and and feel genuinely happy with how it came out because it never comes out the way you think it it will right in your mind. But as far as the ritual. As far as the ritual is concerned, uh, it, you know, when you're hand building, uh, uh, like I do, I don't know how to throw. Uh, every piece has to start the exact same way. You know, you build a, a uh, you make a little slab for the for the base, and then you coil upwards. And um, in doing so, uh, that that involves a lot of repetitive, labor-intensive work, and um, which is very different from painting because, uh, at least for me, because I would typically make a mark and then step away and think about it. And then, um, you know, I wasn't, um, you know, the picture uh, definition of, of like the a, a 40s ab X painter furiously working on a, on a patch of canvas for two hours. It was like a very hesitant staccato style of working. So I really enjoyed this this sort of fluid rhythm, and uh, then once the the coils were built up, I was able to build out the form. I sort of usually have a an idea in mind of how I generally want it to look. Like I make a little sketch before doing anything, just to have a, a vague goal in mind, and then you know it changes from there. And then once I've gotten past the bisque process, uh, the first firing the bisque, uh, then I can. Uh, start glazing, which has its own, it's probably the most painful part because anyone who's uh, used ceramics, you really don't know how it's going to look if you're um, uh, using anything uh, uh, other than underglazing, underglazes. So um, yeah, you, you have really no idea. 
there's like a discovery kind of. Yeah, uh, I mean, I've 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 tried to be a good a good student and a and a and a very detailed one of glaze chemistry, and and I'm, you know, not going to make much headway overnight, but there are you know recipes I would follow like in making the glazes and um, approximating something. Uh, where I, I wanted the piece, the place, the piece to go. Mm. Um, the, but the ritualistic aspect, I guess, I guess one uh, goes into the rep repetition and the other in my mind, like the very fact that I chose to make a vessel in the shape of an animal uh, made me think I, you know, I was living in another parallel universe where um, even though we were technologically advanced, we still uh, pay heed to all these different gods. I guess, you know, Japan still um, has this sort of ethos. Like there's a God for everything there, like a different God that you, that you're aware of, or, or even if, even if it's just in a, in a lighthearted manner, you know? Yeah. I like that a lot. I mean, I think of it, think of, like I have a shrine in my studio and I, although I feel like I mean, I mean to like, utilize it more like I I want to like like I have this little lamp I don't know I should do I feel like I was doing it every time I start working and then I kind of fell off of it but like the idea of ritualizing it um and and making it like a real spiritual practice in a way um mm. I'm wondering about like to like well I'm wondering about like so it sounds like you don't really know what how it's gonna turn out, but like, do you have like a plan of how you will glaze it once when you're making the form, or do you kind of figure out the glazing after you make the form? Um, kind of like I used to start every painting. I I have like a vague idea, maybe like a mood. Like I I think I think of colors and moods being closely t intertwined. Mm -hmm. But there is no sort of hard and fast rules uh, associated with it. I think I'm a very like um, fly by the seat of my pants kind of painter anyway. So uh, I might decide like, um, actually most of the pieces had so many different colored glazes on them that it would have been impossible for me to mentally plan any of them. I, so I would typically start out by making a mark or um, glazing some areas and then trying to react to what I did before. It was act, react, act, react, act, react, act, react. So all those like muscle, that muscle memory I developed with color and painting sort of then just got transferred into a three-dimensional object, you yeah. know? Um, and, you know, so to that end, I, I really had no idea how each piece was going to turn out in terms of even its mood. Like I could say to myself, oh, I want this to be a very bright and airy piece i highly doubt that uh i would meet that expectation uh unless um uh i was very 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 rigorous uh in in keeping things to a certain um boundary with each other though i mean i think there's that piece uh with the stacked crabs and maybe that's the closest one i was able to kind of use color in a very clear conceptual way one was the happy side the other was the set the angry side and each you know side reflected a certain color mood you know right i love that one it it 
feels like it harkens back to that childhood drawing you made of the happy, sad heart. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 that's a, obviously a, a, a complete reference to, uh, well, at least to me and you, a complete reference to that um, piece for sure. Uh, I'm obsessed with that duality of uh, happy, sad. Uh, there's something, the blunt um, force sort of trauma of, of that spectrum, like that duality uh, is endlessly amusing to me because um, it leaves no room for nuance. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, yeah. I, anyway, uh, Jennifer, I have to go for a minute because uh, um, I'm parked behind Nancy and she has to go somewhere. So sh can I move my car and we can just yeah. take a, a few minute break? Uh, I, I was, when I was moving my car, I thought, oh, I didn't like what I said about the duality that I was referring to of the, you know, happy and then sad. I, I think what I was, I think why I really like that image of that stark contrast is I feel like in culture we're, we're um, taught the idea that, you know, we're supposed to learn to be happy. Uh, and uh, happiness is smiling and having a lot of money and um, uh, having fruitful relationships and so on. And then if you're sad, uh, that's horrible. You should always avoid being sad at all costs, uh, even though we know it's rather inevitable to be sad sometimes. Um, and that struggle between those two poles is sort of defines life uh, largely in a really, you know, succinct way. And I think that's one, one, re one big reason why I'm attracted to that idea. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it reminds me of something, I wonder what you think about this, like, I read this thing by this psychoanalyst, I think it's James Hollis, who's talking about like we should aim not to have a happy life, but to have a meaningful life. And that sometimes the most meaningful things can actually come out of struggle or, you know, periods of unhappiness. Mm -hmm. or that makes sense. Yeah. Like happiness could be kind of like superficial or like a comfort zone or something. It depends. Yes. Uh, I also, it could also be a defense mechanism against a granular, more nuanced um, understanding of life and how you can sometimes feel multiple emotions at the same time. Yeah, totally. That's true. Like you can feel, yeah, both joy and sadness simultaneously or a whole range of other things. Absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, I think movies do a much better job at conveying um, joy and sadness at the same time, or horror and excitement, or, you know, all the, it does such, so much a better job of conveying these things than any sculpture or painting can do. Uh, I mean, I, we could probably argue about that, but there is, uh, by and large, the the consensus that more people will cry in front of a movie than they will in front of a, a, a work of art. 
Right. I think maybe I, I feel like I'm inclined to agree with that. And I think maybe part of it is that a film can comprise this like kind of arc of different things, you know, strung together, whereas a sculpture or a painting is often one moment or one image. Like a film is like many different things that are kind of um, butting up against each other. And maybe like, but maybe like a show, I do feel like I'm often attracted to as an artist, like people that try to put multiple things together in a cinematic way or in what could be considered a cinematic way, like a show could be considered like a film, you know, different pieces being different right. moments. Right, um, yeah. But um, I was thinking about like, the sea as like i don't know do you know this roomy quote like it's something about like outside of right doing and wrong doing there's a field i'll meet you there and maybe like butchering it but i think that's basically the gist of it i mean i think art can be that space of this beyond right doing and wrong doing but i feel like the sea also feels like this kind of like lawless space or this space of like without judgment it's such a wacky like <laughs> I don't know it, um it feels like a moral or I don't know maybe that's not the right word like it feels like this very free space yeah I I conceived of the sea at least for myself as a, as a shame-free zone yeah uh I, I remember I was making a show uh, with ceramics and I, the first one really. And I thought, why? And I asked myself, why the hell am I doing this? Why, why, why? And like you said earlier, uh, shame has been largely the, the huge through line through, through my porno paintings. And, you know, and this conversion to marine life has to, uh, must be in some way continuing that because uh, I was, feeling much more free to explore where I fit into the whole equation of shame. And I could talk in a much more, not necessarily direct autobiographical way, but, you know, at least allude to it. And the sea is like a, a, a wonderful sort of stage play space of that ethos. Like um, the show ended up, uh, because of the nature of the garage, you know, like you, you're, you go outside the space when the garage doors are open. And so when I installed all the works, they, it does look like a, a stage play. Yeah, I love the, um, the palm tree um, pedestals too. I thought they work really well. Yeah, uh, I was really pleased how they turned out. I, before uh, the show went up, I, I was really trying to rack my brain as to what I could use aside from the um, traditional plinth to to install the show. I just knew that it could not be a, just a, a piece of furniture or, uh, a, you know, a plinth or a pedestal. It couldn't be that. And it also had it had to be something something that was uh, all over the place somewhere. <laughs> so yeah. I the palm tree couldn't have been more perfect. Perfect. It feels like, I don't know. Yeah, it really just works really well. I like how they're so raw and organic and stuff. Yeah, I, 
I, so it really like fed into that idea of the 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 sea as a a space of play and pure creativity and um, freedom uh, of from from having shame or 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 feelings of restraint. I I another person said that to me, which pleased me quite a bit, was that her her child had such a fun time going through the show. Not that it's because I I have particular love of children. I just I like the idea that a kid could, you know, who otherwise hates going to openings, find something really fun about a show. Yeah. It's interesting that they, I do think I can see how they would work on a very childlike level, but also a very adult level at the same time. Yeah, like kids love um, input, uh, like sensory input. And, you know, I wasn't doing it with, screens or anything kinetic which which is super super amazing to me because i would think that no child would um be fascinated with any things that that are just textures and um synthetic renditions of animals or things like that that like like that wouldn't be enough for a kid anymore but like it is yeah i mean um i feel like so they're like a kind of place of like being released from shame, you feel? Yeah, or a place where I could imagine uh, myself compassionately embodying these different creatures of the deep uh, or existing separate to them as a witness to their being. Like, mm. that I'm sure you, did you see uh, my octopus, the teacher uh, that was out? on Netflix. Wait, what? No. It's called it's called My Teacher the Octopus or My Octopus the Teacher. I can't remember which which way the title goes, but it's um it's about a guy that uh who had been working in in wildlife films and lives in South Africa and took it uh to an extreme uh where he was following a singular octopus for about most of its life, its life cycle. Octopus don't live that long. They live like a year. And, uh, and he watched it uh, hunt. He watched it um, get, uh, uh, nearly get killed by a shark and survive somehow. And the octopus eventually ended up trusting him and uh, allowing him to cradle it in his arms. And uh, he was, uh, you know, having an existential crisis, I suppose, before the uh, relationship with the octopus occurred. So that he was able to bridge uh, some kind of what, what really feels like an incredible compassionate gap between animal to human and human to animal. Mm, yeah. And uh, I don't know, the timing of the release of the film couldn't have been more perfect because that is kind of what I felt like I was doing with the sculptures hmm. so you like do you feel like you're like falling in love with these creatures well it i was joking to some friends the other day that that man completely had an emotional affair on his family with that octopus there's no question about it <laughs> um and uh i can't say i'm having an emotional affair with sea animals but uh, I am inhabiting 
them in this in this way that feels very generative and productive. And also, you know, maybe hopefully it'll it'll lead to some more compassion towards myself. Yeah, that's a cool idea. I mean, so maybe you're like learning a a kind of new way of being from them. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I, I think I I always. And I think we both really uh, bond on this in terms of making artwork. We we make art largely to explore ourselves and our psyches mm -hmm. to hopefully discover something newer about ourselves in the process. And um, this show was probably the the most distilled version of that pursuit. Yeah, I feel I feel that it's exciting. Like especially. I think especially since it was such a big, like you knew you had to make this shift away from something that was really working for you for a long time. And that was very anxiety producing. And then it really mm -hmm. found this new place. Yeah. Uh, it, it felt like a life or death situation for me because uh I, I don't really know how to do anything else. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I, I have had other jobs, but, um, you know, actually earlier this year uh, in, in I, I, the, the gallery I worked for closed. So I was, um, and, and my art opportunities had sort of dried up somewhat. So I was like, trying to figure out what, what a responsible person should be doing. And so I, I tried to be, a uh, data scientist for a month or two. And uh, I, I, I ended up, you know, failing out of school, so to speak, because it, it just wasn't a good fit. And so I got spit back into art production um, when, when Emma offered me a show. And uh, I already had some priors to work off of with the, the ceramics, but I, I really hadn't felt like it was I was really writing a, a really really generative vein yet I, I just couldn't I didn't see how I could take it further at all yeah I like that's so cool that you got kind of pushed into it in a way <laughs> like yeah you got pushed past your like yeah yeah and also letting go like I, I told myself uh as a rule for some reason that i wasn't going to make vessels like i was like how do i get away from making vases and bowls um and then decorating them i i didn't want to do that i wanted i wanted to make sculpture but uh in leading up to that i i kind of uh always was dangerously close towards um like not sculpture per se but tchotchkes like artfully made tchotchkes and uh i was I was still kind of felt like hovering dangerously close to that category. Um, and uh, it, it felt like even though I was initially resistant that vessels, using the vessels as a template was like the, like the, the way I had to go. Right. Um, but you were resistant to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I do, I don't know if you do this ever as an artist, but I, I sometimes uh, want to resist the most obvious choice. Yeah. 
definitely by default and vessels seem like an obvious choice um you know there's a there's a central uh locus of gravity so you know that's why vessels are built the way they are you you don't have to worry about um bal balancing anything um they have this central uh, vortex of, of gravity and uh they're utilitarian and they have this this you know infinitely long or <laughs> hugely long history to them and i thought that's just the most obvious thing everyone makes vessels why should i do it but it was it was clearly the the only way I could go forward, so I had to use it to my advantage. Yeah, I mean, when I look at them, I don't really. It's not. I don't really think about what they are in terms of function or something. They just look like themselves. But on a positive note, I feel like a vessel, like there is a there's an openness to them, which maybe goes along with this whole vibe you're working on yeah totally um yeah i'm glad that you say that it, you know the vessel um nature doesn't quite track with you that's cool uh i'm i'm hoping that as i go forward i i uh don't stay married to the vessel i i want to um i have no intention of painting anytime soon so i want to keep building upon my ideas of what could happen with ceramics as a sculptural tool, sculptural yeah. medium. That's interesting. And gravity, and gravity, and gravity, and gravity for me is like a huge problem. Like I'm not used to it. <laughs> yeah. Do you um? So you feel pretty like you 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 feel pretty cool with like leaving painting alone like you're not missing it at all i mean i feel like like i said before i think you are painting you're just painting in three dimensions kind of yeah yeah i mean i don't know i just feel like i uh painting and i had an acrimonious divorce and um i'm still needing my space from it um i've i i know we'll both become friends again um, in some way, but uh, I, I, I just felt like I was trying to squeeze blood from a stone. Um, I, I couldn't, I didn't see a way forward that felt really, really generative to me with uh, painting on, on a, on a flat surface. Yeah. I mean, it's cool that you, I don't know. It seems like even though it's quite a leap of faith in this other direction, I feel like it makes total sense in a way to like, yeah very different and yet it feels like this really um i don't know meaningful progression or something yeah i uh i hope so um i don't know i mean i i love painting and uh maybe all the years of painting i devoted um are we're only like a build up to working three dimensionally i mean i guess that that uh that story is yet to be fully borne out but uh, i'm not resistant to it um yeah. i'm just trying to be open to what to what happens I, I just feel like when we resist failure uh that's when we get kind of stuck in these loops and and i felt like 
Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting too old to be stuck in these loops anymore. So whenever uh, there's just resistance and misery uh, involved, and that's what uh, painting started to feel like to me, I had to, I had to do something else. Mm. I feel like so uh, the sea does feel like this kind of a orgiastic space too, or something. Oh yeah, there's like endless amount of forms you can play with there, and uh, the spatial um, encounter uh, sort of relationship we have to, to to water being underwater is non-existent. Like I, I was trying to make a painting and had made, made a few paintings of, of underwater sea life. And it's so like, you can't use perspective in it really. It's just so weird. Like um, it's a, it's a picture plane and then there's stuff behind it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it reminds me of like, also um, like, I, I think about it a lot. This like, there's a lot of different little diagrams online of like Freud's model of the mind. And like, there's like this iceberg and like the tip is just the tip above the surface of the water is consciousness. And then the whole main, like 80% of it is below the water and that's unconsciousness. And, and so, mm -hmm. like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, classic, classic, uh, maritime, oriented metaphor of, of, of how um, our mind works for sure. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the may, one of the few like main legacies of Freud because, um, you know, I mean, he still gets bandied about uh, in uh, theory classes and, and things, but I don't think he's revered in inside the research and academic community of, of psychologists as much as we might think. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I'm getting into this guy Adam Phillips. Have you heard of him? He's like Oh, yes, of course. I'm uh I I've come to different points of um feeling about him. I actually uh am now at a point where I I feel like he's a little full of shit, but I'm <laughs> I might come back to him. I I think he he writes really, really uh, engagingly about these paradoxical problems that surround um, mental issues. Yeah. But I, I sometimes wonder is if, if, if that's just all there is to it. Like as a therapist, he seems to, uh, or as a therapist slash writer, he seems to only offer a picture of the problem and never an envision of, of what a solution could be other than sorting out a cognitive map of the problem. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he is very, I think, not invested in not, in keeping things in play or in in um, a provocative space without, yeah, a solution. Yeah. But interesting i don't know i'm just like i i actually have only just started reading his work i was listening to a lot of lectures by him though but i i really like listening to him while i'm painting yeah yeah i i, I was doing the same thing uh a few years ago i would um find uh, find uh lectures and q a's and and radio pieces that he would do for the bbc and listen to those um there's also uh which you know felt like it 
perfectly dovetailed with all my interests. He even makes an appearance in a pretty good Bernard documentary. Whoa, I want to see that. Yeah, he uh, they they had him kind of be a uh, an analyst of Bernard's fascination with his wife and why he painted her so much. Oh, I gotta look that up. Yeah, yeah, definitely look it up. It's on YouTube. Um, but yeah, at the, that, the school of Adam Phillips is, um, I think, I guess it's like sort of like how Slavoj Žižek is, uh, a really like loved figure with artists. Adam Phillips is too, like, because their approach doesn't have necessarily a consistent, um, ideology, ideology to it. Yeah. Uh, they're like jazz musicians with, with theory like they just riff on things and you know and go through all these sort of uh rhythms and and um that's not enough for scientists right well he says adam phillips says like he considers psychoanalysis more akin to poetry than to science which i thought was a really good line and well, like, yeah that well yeah I, yeah, I that that sounds so. I'm glad he said that because I was wondering if he would he would have made the opposite argument. No, he's like not interested in science, and which is how I feel. Also, I mean, not that <laughs> I'm glad it's there, but I'm not. I don't. I don't care to think about things in that way. I prefer to think of them more poetically than scientifically. And um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm of two minds about that. I I love poetry uh, or thinking poetically, not poetry itself so much, but I like thinking about the world in a poetic way, but I also am fascinated with uh, the process by which we pursue truth. And that is the scientific method. And I kind of, uh, you know, secretly wish that I, I had the capacity to have gone that direction if I wanted to. Oh, really? That's so interesting. Cause I don't like, I mean, I think that's to me, the whole point of being an artist is like that we don't like, I don't know, Werner Herzog has this phrase like the accountant's truth versus like, I don't know if he has another word for the other kind of truth, but like- Ecstatic truth. Ecstatic truth, yeah. Or like the felt truth rather than the factual truth or something. Yeah, and I think they can ex coexist perfectly well. Um, I'm I'm totally all for the ecstatic truth. Uh, however, when I I guess that comes maybe dovetails a little bit with my interest in data science. I wanted to see what the method was behind um, making figuring out probabilities and. Um, uh, you know, like correlation is not causation, uh, is, is a common saying in the data science, right. community, but there are a lot of correlations and, and that's what you end up, uh, presenting to, to clients and, and things like that. Uh, and art, and I guess art does that too, uh, to a certain extent, we, we present correlations and that's in a way that's what poetry is. Yeah, totally. Like, but maybe there's no, maybe some level, like, I'm like spitballing here, but like maybe the data science was in a way like 
a desire to have something a little more tangible than art is ever going to be like it's like a kind of complete opposite of what you know there's no end point there's yes. like and, no fit there's a, and yeah and 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 in coding there's only one right way to do it yeah. otherwise the it won't work um and uh and that was coupled with uh you know data science graphs that you know had some degree of i mean an extreme degree of accuracy in terms of the numbers itself but uh it did go into a great layer of abstraction that was rather fascinating to me because you could, you, if you started thinking of numbers as vectors, you could think of uh, as vectors going into space, information then became multidimensional. And if you think of information as being multidimensional, it seemed like there was no end to what you could possibly uh, infer from any number of things and, and actually come up with like, uh compelling arguments right that's what that's where science kind of falls apart i or not falls apart but like we have this idea of like science as offering an indisputable truth but it's not at all true like it's a way of looking at phenomenon but you still have to interpret it and make sense of it yeah i mean i uh uh one of my favorite podcast pundits, Eric Weinstein, said, "Like, uh, you know, the truth is overrated, or something like that." Um, and he's somebody that comes from a, a math background. Um, and when I heard him say that, I was a little puzzled. But in in context of this conversation, it makes more sense. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there's like you could even think about this moment like being the true artist helps the world by revealing mystic truths and um i mean i think it's an there's an irony yes. in the piece but it's like mystic truths plural it's like is a part mm. of it yeah uh yeah i didn't catch that subtlety there yeah truths um which infers there's no singularity yeah um and you can have a lot of parallel universes in fact actually scientifically they i think they've proven that there are in fact parallel universes i believe it <laughs> yeah um i forget i'm gonna butcher this but they you know they, they the big bang theory uh i think has been largely accepted and then they figured out that before the Big Bang, there was still like remnants of another universe before that. Mm, right. I mean, there's a lot of mystery in all of that. Like, there's like, you know, the and the key word is theory also. Like, I mean, it's a plausible theory that makes sense, but it's, there's no way to prove it in a way or not to prove it completely at least, or that it's the only, maybe only one part of the story or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you, 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 they're getting only tiny little slivers of uh, the alleged truth uh, at a time. And, um, you know, I forget like what they were talking about on, the, on my favorite 
podcast, one of my favorite podcasters, like why isn't, hasn't there been another Einstein since Einstein? Like why hasn't there been one singular person that's advanced physics at, to the level that he did? And, uh, and I think part of the reason why, uh, I, I think Eric Weinstein was arguing was that we have to let go of string theory and all the other sort of things that happened after Einstein. We have to just throw it out the window. Otherwise we're not gonna be able to go forward. Really? Yeah. Because they're too like limiting or something? Exactly. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and uh, Einstein arrived at, um, you know, the, the idea of gravity and how it functioned and, and speed of light by somehow transcending uh, the templates that existed on, on the mortal plane. Like he somehow was able to grab a wisp of something. Yeah. Way higher. And, and he did it through, uh, I think, his imagination. Yes, he's very big on imagination and intuition and stuff, actually, which we don't think of as being part of science, but I love that about him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... You know, they always say his best work was done in his earlier years, which is probably, you know, at the time when you don't quite know as much and you're more brash and you're more prone to making these kind of leaps, you know? Yeah. Um, but I th I'd like to think, you know how like they say, oh, a lot of scientists, their best work was done when they're younger or in music, like, oh, the, the album, the best album was always the first album and so on. Like, I always think of, being an artist is an advantage in that uh, I don't think that rule really applies so much to being an artist. I, I find that a lot of artists get better as they age. Yeah, I much prefer that model. <laughs> like, it's yeah. I mean, whatever, like whatever works for you, I guess. But I, I feel it feels like a more generative model to feel like you're going to keep getting better and that your wisdom will be something you're building on. Yeah, I, unless the the market traps you first, yeah, there's there's so much um, wisdom, uh, intuitive wisdom, ecstatic truths to build upon, and you know the you know if you could live to be 150 years old, I'd like to think that your work would just keep getting better and better. If you you know if your if your body wouldn't fail you. Yeah. There's, I mean, I feel like Gustin was like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's why he's held up uh, by artists as, as a hero for being like an artist artist. Yeah. And um, he feel about like the, that he thought like the ability to change was like imperative to being an artist. Yeah. Um, being, having the, the, the courage to change uh, is super important. And I think I didn't quite understand what that meant until I did this show. Um, like the, the, the fear of, of change uh, is really, really uh, abrasive and deafening actually at first, but I'm glad I pushed through. Yeah, totally. I mean, it feels like it really paid off. <laughs> uh, for now, yeah, I think it did. You know, even if um, the show didn't land in any particular way, I still 
even if it didn't, I and it did, but it did. I I I I still would feel that there's there's a whole new terrain to mine now. Yeah. So I'm gonna make a terrible pun, but you feel like these crabs have legs still. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Um, yeah, on Instagram, I occasionally get uh, very kind randos sending me uh, puns, and I, I always say nice. So I, I extend that to you. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I have some more. Uh, I got some more some more games in me, Coach. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to. I have just a couple more questions before we wrap up, and that's cool with you. I yeah. I feel like we were talking about ritual, and I feel like I surmised people posting about it, like this little, this guy. I'm not knowing what the, oh, wait. No, I don't know what the title is, but the, the creature you're supposed to, like, tell your shame to. What's the, tell me more about that one. Is that? Am I getting that? Oh, right? the the shame eating creature. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. <laughs> I wanted to conceive of an anthropomorphic, uh, more mythical, um, entity for the ocean. I I wasn't completely content on sticking to octopus and crabs, and other animals. Um, I needed I needed some kind of in between creature between me human being, hominid, and sea creature. And those guys fit the bill. So I conceived of them as um, personal gods through which I could expunge my shame. Mm-hmm. And invite people to like tell, you invite the viewer to like interact with it? Uh, I would like that. I don't, I don't know if... They would necessarily inspire direct interaction, but uh, I, w- I hope they would inspire by the very concept of them being shame suckers that that you could, you know, personify the exorcism of your shame with, with some kind of god or entity. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought I got the impression that people were like confessing to it or something. <laughs> Oh, well, there was a photo I posted on Instagram of my friend Asha whispering uh, some sweet nothings into it or what appeared to be that. But she did tell me uh, in private that she did confess some things to the shame creature, which I got a lot of enjoyment from hearing. Yeah, Um, I like that idea. Yeah. uh, And... It also partly maybe came from the idea that I remember about a year or two ago, my uh therapist and I conceived as that negative dialogue voice in my head is the parasite. We, we named it the parasite. And as an exercise, I tried to draw what I think the parasite looked like. And the parasite looks nothing like the shame-sucking creatures, but uh there was one commonality, which was like these the the mouth parts felt like more vacuum-like. Mm. Was that helpful to like give it a face or a name? I think so. It made, by drawing what the parasite appeared to be, it, 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 it now um, 
has a, a clear role in my life and I, and, and all the kinds of ways that I can undermine its, 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 its power. Yeah. Do you feel like you like have a relate, like do you talk to it or have some kind of imaginal relationship with it that's different? Uh, I try to change my, the nature of my relationship to it, but, uh, the thing is the parasite can't be talked to. It talks to you. It, it has no ears. <laughs> um, it has no capacity to hear what, what I, what, what any other voice would say to it. Mm. Um, it, it, it just excretes, uh, negative dialogue. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and and obviously with a good a, a a good underlying purpose, which is to protect me from something. Right. It sounds like a negative parental figure. <laughs> yeah, like uh, at, you know how it is as kids, we internalize some aspect of our parents mm-hmm. or something we hear into our into our being, and um, I'm sure the parasite is like part of my parents. Sure, yeah. you know. So anyway, I hope I answered your question about the shame creatures. Yeah, I like that a lot. It, and I see that it is like, it does feel the most like mixture between human and animal. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I, I I want, did you see that movie by, um, about like the, the the underwater creature that had a love affair with that woman? No. <laughs> Uh, uh, I let's let's not go into it, but I I I disagreed with the portrayal of the creature, and I want oh. my creature to be uh benevolent, but not necessarily your friend either. Right? It, was it the shape of water? I didn't see it, but yes, that's the one. Yeah. You know what I like though? Those I love those hope. Hokusai prince with the octopus like making love to a woman or something or like yes yes those are great um yeah i don't know if hokusai single-handedly had a had a hand in this but you know there's a a a genre in pornography in japan where women drape themselves in octopus uh, outside of water and and kind of do very sensual uh, gestures with them. It's it. I don't quite understand it, but I can only understand it through the lens of Hakusai. Yeah, I wonder which came first, if he was like riffing on that genre, or if that, or if people just took his thing and ran with it. Yeah, uh, I think there's like I said earlier. I think uh, in Japan there are uh gods for all sorts of things and and there must be some kind of octopus god yeah and they like to eat octopus too which i like also (laughs) yes they do eat them and and ever since i fell in love with the octopus i i will not eat them for for uh any amount of money except a million (laughs) dollars did you ever watch this thing i sent you or told you about the john penn lev film about octopus no. He's really cool. He's like he's like this kind of old-timey like I guess you could say avant-garde filmmaker, but he's made all basically nature films that are just wacky and weird. Hmm. He's very cool. 
Who is this? His name is Jean Penlev. Jean Penlev. I've never uh, uh, heard tell of this man, but I will look into it. Yeah, he's got one about like the octopus and the seahorse and stuff, which the seahorse is interesting too. It's like it's like uh, androgynous or like the men have babies. No, the males give birth. Yeah, that that's quite weird about them. Yeah. I could see you getting into them, too. Oh, yeah. I, there was a couple of uh, seahorses in my... Sh no, actually, just one. One small seahorse. <laughs> but I remember I still ke kept the uh, seahorse you sent me many years ago. Oh, I don't even remember that, but that's cool. Yeah, I think you sent me... I think it was you who sent it to me. You sent me a dried seahorse. Oh, no, that, now I remember. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, so it was a harbinger of what was to come. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess my only last question, unless you have anything other, I was just thinking, um, you talked about this thing of like the ritual, we kind of got off track on that, of like the building. And I was wondering if that, like, I remember as a kid doing clay and you have to like, kind of like beat up the clay to get the air holes out and stuff. And I wonder- Wedging it, yeah, you have to wedge it. Yeah, do you get any, is there a cathartic quality to that preparatory stuff? Or do you like, like I've been, when I'm like have to just, okay, mm. I like the time to like think about or prepare mentally for painting. And I wonder just how that part relates to the other part. Ah, uh, um. I don't have to wedge generally too much because at least from what I've read, uh, you if you use the clay straight out from the bag and, and just wire cut it from there, you generally don't have to wedge it. But if you futzed with it and then put it back into the bag, that's when you wedge. Oh. Um, and I didn't have to do that too much. And I actually don't enjoy wedging a whole lot, maybe because I don't really feel like I'm doing it right. <laughs> um, so the real um, catharsis comes from palpating clay, not necessarily beating it up, but palpating it, like, like just feeling its moist, soft body against your skin. It's like, um, <laughs> it's, it's very sensual. It's really nice. Yeah, that seems very like primal too, or like- Totally. And stuff or whatever. Yeah. Totally. And like, I was telling my shrink the other day that like, I probably had more peace in making my show than I've had in a while because I would typically like, you know, hand build things and then listen to a podcast. So my mind was at once like, you know, sort of on auto autopilot with the labor, but also intellectually stimulated. So I was, I was able to not think about or let the parasite have its way with me yeah like there's this built-in time where you're not actively having to make decisions but you're just doing something kind of repetitive yes exactly yeah, so yeah. uh there's i think there's catharsis in that yeah it definitely is like it's a bit of like a nice rhythm with taking the pressure off like you're doing something and you and it's like a low pressure part of doing it. You can feel like you're doing something productive without 
feeling too anxious or something. Yeah, if you relatively know what you're doing, like uh, at the beginning, I really had no idea what I was doing and, and uh, things were collapsing on me and you know I would lose hours of work and, and that is not fun. So in leading up to that and not knowing what you're doing, it can be very an anxious, anxiety inducing because uh, you're just so in the dark as to what the right thing to do is, you know? Do you feel like you have a better grasp now where you're not like losing things to the kiln and stuff like that? Or is I that think, like part of the deal? Uh, I'm a little, I'm a little better about it, but there's always, there's always some variable that can escape your attention and something can still go wrong and you're always going to lose things. And that's been another instructive thing about ceramics. Like, I mean, I've, I think we've all, you and I have both had, plenty of paintings that didn't work out and um you know you move on but i've always i've always had trouble with that and and like um i always think a painting could be saved somehow i may i may not be always right but that you know i have saved a lot of paintings from from a funeral waiting for them uh yeah. whereas like ceramics like if it really goes off the rails there's no saving it would you, if something like exploded, would you try to recreate it or would you like be like, that just wasn't meant to be? I would generally try to recreate it. Uh, at least for this show, there were like moments where there's things cracked and broke off, but, and I, uh, through complete determination, figured out how to fix them mm. uh, uh, by artificial means. So mm. um, I got, I got, I was joking to my wife that like, there's a career waiting for me in ceramic restoration. <laughs> well, there's that cool, I think thinking of that cool, there's, I think it's a Japanese technique also where they like mend pottery with like gold and they're really into that like. Kintsugi. Yeah. It's yeah. Cool. Yeah, Kintsugi's cool. I haven't tried it like uh, in the proper traditional way yet, but I, I kind of did my own version of that for this show, I think. And that's when like acrylic paint came in because there were some paintings or uh, some sculptures that I was just literally painting on. Yeah, that, so you can also just literally paint on them too, which that's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's not really like uh, the most intuitively correct thing to do, but I figured out how to make uh you can brighten the color if you're really disappointed in some ways with acrylic paint and then i go over it with this stuff called cold glaze which uh is this really nasty smelling stuff so I, you have to wear a mask when you use it but um it it dries uh pretty much on par with with any silica based glass mm, that's cool and you're not yeah. eating out of it anyway so like who cares <laughs> yeah exactly um you know the the holy writ of ceramics is that you're you're not supposed to uh, accept anything cracked or broken, and you know it's and that's it. The fire gods had their way with you, and you have to move on. But uh, when you start thinking of it more as sculpture, uh, you know, in the I guess in the fine art context, you don't have to really, you know, obey. Yeah, I feel like there could even be metaphoric potential totally totally i had a piece that not to drag this interview on too much longer but i i had a i'm about a year or two ago i made a piece it was sort of like a self-portrait as a merman 
And uh, I got overexcited and I took the piece out of the kiln too early, which uh, made a thermal shock crack occur on my piece. And uh, my dealer was like, I can't sell this now. And I was like, sure you can. I mean, the crack gives a character. And he was like, yeah. no. Um, so <laughs> what? didn't win that battle. I didn't win that battle, but when I do get that piece back eventually, I'm going to kintsugi the crack and I'm, and, I, and I and I'm adamant that the piece will actually be better now for it. Yeah, I would like to see that cuz it's like, yeah, there's like another Rumi quote where he's like the wound is where the light gets in and that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you're becoming quite the Rumi scholar these days. I basically just told you the two poems I know by him. <laughs> but <laughs> I would think I mean, he's pretty brilliant. I would I would like to know more about <laughs> I would like to know more about Rumi myself, among many other mystic uh, truth tellers. Yeah.